Hey, TUL listeners. A special announcement. August 3rd, Nathan will be speaking in Virginia. He'll be speaking at the Valley Pike Farmer's Market. This is just off of I- I-81, Interstate 81, south of Harrisonburg. So if you're in that area, Nathan will be speaking. This is a pretty cool venue, by the way. And his topic is, do I need community to know who I am? It's a very Nathan-centric title if I've I've ever heard one. So Nathan would love to see you, love to hear your questions, love to chat with you. So if you're in that area, remember Valley Pike Farmer's Market just off I-81, August 3rd. Love to see you there. Hey, TOL listeners. This is co-host Cameron McAllister. Today, we listen in to Nathan Rittenhouse interviewing Dr. Andy Bannister. We've had Andy on the podcast before. This time, we're going to be talking to him about how do I talk to my children about Muslims and Islam? Very interesting subject, and in this melting pot world that we have, I think you'll find it highly relevant. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm Nathan Rittenhouse, and today, instead of Cameron McAllister's voice with me, you're going to be hearing the voice of Dr. Andy Bannister. And Andy Bannister, it's going to be really hard for me to make him sound like a serious person because I know him in his punny ways, but let me give you the actual bio. Dr. Andy Bannister is the director of SOLAS and an adjunct lecturer at Whitcliffe College, University of Toronto. He holds a PhD in Islamic studies and is an adjunct research fellow at the Center for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at Melbourne School of Theology. Andy is the author of an academic book, an oral formulaic study of the Quran, and two popular level books, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or The Terrible Consequences of Really Bad Arguments, and his latest, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And I believe there's another book in the works here we'll speak about at the end of the program. When not traveling, speaking, or writing, Andy is a keen hiker, mountain climber, and photographer. He is married to Astrid, and they have two children. Andy, thanks so much for your time. Welcome to Thinking Out Loud. It's uh, great to be with you, Nathan. Thank you for having me on the show. Andy and I have a a whole list of uh, probably jokes and awkward stories we could tell about each other from our adventures in various parts of the world. showed up at some of the same conferences and we both worked for that other organization that shall not be named at this point, but some of you know what we mean there. Um, Andy is the delight, quick thinker, uh, as I said at the beginning, really enjoys good puns. I would highly recommend The Atheist Who Didn't Exist if you enjoy a a good uh, quirky read. I, I think the review that I give of that, my wife would be reading it and then laughing out loud and then stop and say, oh wait, hang on, that is a good thought. Wait a second there. So if you enjoy that kind of thing, I can recommend that to you, and I think you'll uh, enjoy listening to Andy as he speaks to us. You'll notice he doesn't sound like he's from West Virginia. He's coming to us from Scotland today, I do believe. And um, England, actually. England. Oh, yeah, that's England. right. You, you moved England Shire. England Shire. We moved yeah. a year ago from uh, from Bonnie, Scotland to, uh, to to England. Yeah, that's bad because I actually talked to you since you've done that, so I should have known that. Um, Anyway, Andy has a a wide breadth of knowledge in the topic that I want to ask him about today, which is how to talk to children about Islam, which some of you listening will have children or you'll be working in Sunday school classes or you have nephews and nieces. But I want to just to think for a second here about kind of the the trajectory of things that really captivate, I think, Christian 
minds in kind of the news cycle. So you have 9-11, and then after that, a real, I don't know what the word there is, the Islamic scare. Is that too crude of a term to use, perhaps? And then, you know, we have other political things that pop up. Uh, transgenderism, I think, is maybe a, a more um, frontline issue for Christians these days. But there still is a lot of conversation that happens about how should we be thinking about Islam and speaking and teaching our children about it. And I'll just kind of lay this out there as a starting point um, for some context. So there's a sense in which almost all of us have or know, you know, have Muslim friends. People are children go to school with people who are Muslim, that sort of thing. On the other hand, there's those of us who have read the Quran or looked at the ways in which Islam has marketed itself in certain parts of the world would say, well, there are some things here to be uh, curious about. And uh, this all came home for me when one of my kids got off the bus and, uh, you know, the things your children learn on the school bus. And I, he had a, a definition about Islam of people who hate you enough to die to kill you. Um, that's, and you're like, oh, hang on. We need to, we need to recalibrate here a little bit on that. On the other hand, you could pick up some surahs in the Quran and justify some of that. So how do you, I think you live in an even more, more pluralistic society than many Americans who will be listening to this, um, but people from all over the world listen to this as well. Mm. How do you, with your rich knowledge of the background and the ins and outs of uh, the, the scriptural text of Islam, and then the lived personal experiences of friendships that you have uh, and the respect that you have for Muslim mm. people. How do you navigate that? What are some pointers there or boundaries at least that we have in those conversations when we're uh, helping people think through the appropriate way to really honor and respect the individuals and maintain good mm. friendships, but on the other way, uh, maybe there's some things or, or are there things we should be cautious about when we think about what it is that mm. Islam teaches about the way that the world really works. So that's a four-minute question, and yeah, I gosh. expect a forty-minute so answer. I was going to say that was great, Nathan. That was sort of like fifteen questions in the one in the one thing. But to start with your son on the school bus is interesting because I think, I think the reaction I I get I hear from many Christians, and obviously your son ran into some of this somewhere when it came comes to Islam. Is given that Islam is a religion that is confident. It's a religion that is growing. Um, so I don't know what the stats are in the US, but in the UK, we potentially may have 13 million, 13 million Muslims here by 2050, which is quite astonishing to stick. But Islam is also growing rapidly in, in North America and Europe. Um, given that, and then given some of the issues that you raise, and there, yeah, there are some huge questions around Islam, um, radicalism, uh, Islamic history, slavery, um, Islamic expansionism, and then the theology and the Quran, all those kind of things. That can cause Christians to, to fall into that into one of two default modes. We go for fight or flight. So fight mm -hmm. is we we lash out, um, and that was you know your son had learned a soundbite to that effect. I was at a conference once in the in the states back in the, the time when you and I worked for that other organisation, um, and I remember a gentleman raising his hand after we did a session on Islam, saying, "I don't understand all this talk about understanding and reaching Muslims. Why don't we just bomb these suckers back to the Stone Age?" And that was quite brutal. But I get where it was coming from. It's fear. So fight. Um, the other response that Christians sometimes make is flight. We, we run away. We try not to engage. We don't. We try not to ask the questions. Perhaps we tell ourselves, oh, I don't have any Muslims in my community. I don't need to worry about it. And we miss the fact the world is changing. So I think neither of those starting points is, is helpful. I think a great starting point is to get a little bit informed. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned transgenderism because there is a link and the link mm. is this. We are surrounded by other religious worldviews. 
And transgenderism is a religious worldview in, in many ways. The idea that you can have an, an, an eternal, an internal soul that is gendered different is your body. That's a religious belief. Um, atheism functions for many people like a religious belief. And then we have Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, Judaism, Islamism, Islamism. this goes on. And Islamism, yes. Pessimism, um, <laughs> sarcasmism. Um, and then the point being is that if we want to be Christian to engage the world well, we need to look at those around us, see, okay, what do they believe? How can we take a bit of time to understand and then communicate. And we can fle uh, flesh this out a little bit because this is the first short initial answer. But, uh, but Nathan, the place I always go back to in the scriptures, whether it's Islam or atheism or transgenderism, Acts 17 has so many lessons for us there. You know, Paul begins when he's there in Athens. He walks around the city. He takes the time to understand is the first thing he does. He figures out, okay, what do they believe? What are the statues? What are the idols? What are the beliefs that he's dealing with? And we can learn from that. We can take the time to understand. Secondly, he finds the he finds things he can be positive about. So in Muslims, there's many things we can be positive about and we can affirm. It's brilliant. They're not atheists. They've worked out there's a there's a creator God. And there's lots of other things we might talk about. Paul's positive. He goes, You guys were so religious. I was so impressed. And then, by the way, he quotes their own poets of them. He shows he's taken the time to understand. Then he moves to the critique. And then he says to the Athenians, but you know, that that unknown God that you worship, it's bizarre, right? You're worshiping this thing, you don't know what it is. Let me tell you what it is. So he critiques, and then he comes to the gospel. And I think that four-step process, uh, take the time to understand, um, find the points of contact and the things that we can affirm and start from, critique, and do that respectfully and winsomely, but don't be afraid of it. And then lastly, go to the gospel, because we don't just want to you know, triumph culturally over Islam. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. We want people, Muslim, our Muslim friends to encounter Christ. Yeah. So the, one of the things there, though, that I think would be interesting is you, you get these conversations of like, oh, well, you know, if you're a parent, you need to be talking to your children about, you know, sex and these things earlier in life because they're going to be exposed to it, you know, one way or the other. So do you want to, you know, control that conversation or not? And this is just I think the whole thing for me was a reminder of like, I need yes. to be talking to my children at a much younger age than I, you know, a seven year old is going to form an opinion of Islam. Um, and if they learn that from the uh, what the boys at school are saying, um, rather than, you know, you're going to come up with stuff that, you know, my wife and I would never say about uh, Muslims. So it, I, for me, it was a, just a good reminder there, too. And, and maybe for those yeah. of you listening to say, you probably need to be having clear conversations about um, these. Now, the other thing, though, that makes it difficult, Andy, is, you know, I know a lot of families, we start off reading uh, the Old Testament to our children. And, you know, a lot of our children education, Christianly speaking, is, is rooted in the Old Testament, which has some pretty severe statements about other religions. And so I was talking to a friend who uh, whose child had said something about Islam based off of what would, in the Old Testament time, been a pretty accurate theology of how you would treat somebody from a, <laughs> from a different religious group. And, you know, and so again, there's a, there's a the theological construct there that we yeah. have to move into the teaching of Jesus beyond just a uh, yeah. culture warring. Um, so I don't know. That's just a thought. And yeah. There. I mean, lots I'd say there. I mean, first thing, as I just said, and you affirmed, I think to, to tease apart the culture warring and the, and the gospel, you know, yeah, Christians are called to engage in politics. Some of us, not culture warring, but certainly the political sphere. But let's not, you know, naively sort of just baptize our, our political theology in, in, in sort of Christian trappings and assume that we're, we're okay. Um, that's a daft thing to do. Um, 
then in terms of the kids though i mean like you i've got young well youngish kids my youngest is eight and my uh my my uh, my second child is 10 and what we figured out is interesting is what you need to be doing as a christian parent is trying to get ahead of the game on the community that they're part of what are the questions and the issues that they're going to be running into they don't have muslim friends we homeschool uh, which is a whole interesting sort of discussion in itself but they hang out with all the neighborhood kids a lot no Muslims, but lots of kids don't believe in God. So we've had to get on the front foot with our kids because, you know, for when you're eight, it's a surprise that people don't believe in God. We've had to help my eight-year-old go, well, let's think about this. This might be some reasons why. These are some perhaps some things you can navigate in the conversation. So I think as Christian parents, look at the community around you. And for many of us, that will include Muslims. And so make sure we address that. But the theology is crucial too. Because I think we don't help ourselves sometimes in churches where we have very simplistic theologies. We don't deal with the questions that the text rises. You know, one reason why I think we see, uh, you know, sort of Christians in their 20s, perhaps suddenly discovering difficult passages in the Old Testament, throwing a wobbly and and giving up on faith is they weren't taught properly as young Christians. Um, so let's talk about the issues. Let's, ra- let's see what the, what's there in the text and deal with it as it arises. And actually, the, the questions that children have theologically can be amazing. So let's create cultures in our homes and in our churches where we are not afraid to tackle the big questions and where kids are taught, it doesn't matter. Any question is fine. We're never going to say to you, that's a terrible question. Um, that's a great starting point. Yeah, so the the problem arises then, Andy. So you kind of outlaid a, outlined a fourfold step there of you know the engagement, of the affirmation of the good there, and then the, the kind of critical critique and you know um, constructive conversation around it. I think a lot of people, though, would say, look, I know I should be doing this for my children, but I myself don't know what I think about this. So it makes it rather difficult mm-hmm. for me to instruct my children on answering some of these yeah. questions. Um, and I know that, you know, what's what's the uh, what's the so lost line? Um, it, it, it's it's a it's teaching others to do the same. Right. So um, what are yes. the reasons? Yes. Yeah, so say something about that. And then the, the resources that that you see available um, that yeah. are good starting points for people. Um to educate question, yourself yeah. on this. Yeah. Yes, again, I always say to people, you know, again, you know, look at those around you. If you're not, if there's no Muslims in your worldview, in your world at all, then maybe this doesn't apply in quite the same way. Maybe it's something else. But whatever it is that your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues believe and care about, take the time to understand, take the time to get a little bit equipped um, so that you can have those conversations. Now, with, with Muslims, there are two things I would say here. For people listening to this thinking, well, hang on, I'm not a reader. I don't have vast amounts of time. What do I do? One thing you can do, Nathan, when I first started having conversations with Muslims 25 years ago, yes, I read, and I'll mention a couple of resources in a moment. But one thing I did is I let Muslims be my guide. So if you've got, say, a Muslim colleague at work, hey, radical idea, why not take your Muslim colleague out for lunch? And say, look, I understand you're, you're a Muslim. Um, I'm a Christian. I don't know much about Islam. Tell me, what do you guys believe? And ask a question and ask a follow-up question and ask a follow-up question. The advantage of that is you'll get a crash course in Islam. But you'll also, every Muslim is a little bit different. And rather than just sort of get this generic idea of what Islam is and then try and squeeze your colleague into it, you'll get to understand what makes your colleague, your friend, your neighbor tick. And then, look, after you've been asking questions for 20 minutes, half an hour, there's every chance they will ask you some. And if they don't, doesn't matter. You can start giving your testimony anyway. Once they've been banging on for half an hour, you can say, well, this is interesting. You know, some of what you describe is quite similar to what I believe as a Christian. That's fascinating. There's also some big differences such as, and you're away. So I learned an awful lot from just having conversations 
with Muslims. And I think if we can learn to take an interest in others, like Paul does in Athens, it helps. In terms of resources, you know, we are so blessed with a huge number of great resources out there. I will just mention two because we could drown people in resources. The first book that I read on Islam all those years ago is, is still in print and regularly reprinted. And it's a book called Answering Islam, The Crescent and the Light of the Cross. Answering Islam, The Crescent and the Light of the Cross by Norman Geisler and Abdus Salib. Um, and that's a brilliant overview of what Muslims believe, a, a, a really good Christian critique of Muslim beliefs about, about the Quran and Muhammad and so on. But um, one half of that writing team, you know, comes from Muslim context and so really understands Islam. It says a really good entry level book. And then it's quite, I mean, that's quite an ideas based book. If you are someone who perhaps prefers, you know, more narrative and testimony, a more recent book, course, you know, you and I had a dear friend who died a few years ago, Nabil Qureshi. Nabil was a former Muslim, Pakistani Muslim, uh, became a Christian later in, in life and wrote his testimony, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And what's clever about that is it's story-based. It's a page turner. I've had friends say to me, I've read that book in an evening because you just keep going. It's such a good, well-told story. But Nabil very skillfully weaves apologetics into it. You discover what were the things as he was you know, exploring, you know, Islam and Christianity, what were the things that led him ultimately out of uh, out of Islam and to embrace, uh, you know, Jesus as his saviour. So, so Answering Islam by Norman Geisler, Abdul Salib, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus uh, by Nabil Qureshi. And if you've got time for a third, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God by some guy called Andy Bannister, <laughs> which has comedy footnotes in it. Oh, oh, well, that, that, that sells it right there. Um... Yeah, I'm I'm jotting these down so we can in, include them in the uh, in the notes. Put them, into the show, put them into the show notes and that kind of thing that professional podcasters do. Yeah, well, we usually forget about it, and then people write and say, "You said you were going to put that in the show notes and did it." Yeah. So we're trying to get back. Exactly, to we're trying to reform. Um, so here's the- you telling me that your listeners don't sit there with paper and pen in hand, like taking notes. That's terrible. There you go, everybody. Andy's disappointed with you. Um, so the I, 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 actually I, I, no, we I, I, have myself, transcript. Yeah. You can read the transcript of our of this podcast on our oh, website. Yeah, well. So if you want to go back and do that, shout out to Mark yes, who does that. It doesn't have the British accent, but it but it will be the words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just read it with a British accent in your mind. So um, <laughs> the the one of the th- problems I think people run into is like the I don't know what the right word here flavors pops into my mind. The flavors of Islam because I've talked to some Muslims who are mm. pretty much like oh you know I would call them maybe the American the Americanized Muslim who's pretty confident that what they believe and what Christians believe are pretty much the same thing. And it's kind of kumbaya. Can't we all just get along? And those conversations always seem a little dishonest to me because of some of the things that I've read from their original sources. And then Mm -hmm. I've sat down with, you know, uh, years ago I was on a panel at a college. It was, and this sounds like the opening of a joke. So it was um, an atheist, an imam, a Buddhist, a lesbian rabbi, and me, uh, Walk into a college, you know, and so it was. Uh, what was the title of that? Um, Can we coexist? I think. And the and the Muslim yeah. guy was great. He was probably you know my favorite co-panelist, but was very clear that he believed, and this was in the United States, he believed that Sharia law was the best outcome for the future of America, and he was unapologetic about it, and extremely consistent in his um, apologetic for why Islam is the best future, why Sharia law is the best moral compass for the future of our country, you know, and. Um, so in some ways, you know, most of us would be gasping as an extremely appalling vision of what we think of in terms of freedom. Very nice guy. I invited myself over to his house for dinner next time I'm in the area, you know, so 
there's there's a way in which you know for me it felt like we could communicate much more clearly because he was being totally consistent with his sources and i was trying to do the same as a christian uh and it felt like a yeah. much more fruitful conversation than one in which we're just kind of tiptoeing around our differences and making it sound like we're all you know doing the same thing so how do you see that gradation of um yeah. You know, and for some of the, you know, some of the the Americanized Islam, as I would call it, would say, well, you know, we don't really believe this. And I would just laugh and say, well, the Muslims with b- bigger beards than me have said otherwise, um, you know, so so pulling that into it. But what's been your experience there on the variation within? And I think this points to the, the wisdom yeah. of you saying, hey, just invite the friend out to lunch and figure out what version of Islam we're talking about. Yes, exactly. We, well, yeah, and you're dead right. The, um, there is huge diversity in Islam. I remember years ago, a Muslim friend saying to me, you know, he said, where well, we have two Muslims, we have 10 opinions. Um, which, I mean, to be fair, that's not totally dissimilar to Christianity, but yes, oh, there, right, there is yeah. that huge, huge, yeah, huge diversity going on. It was interesting. Some, some years ago, there's a very, there's a quite well-known introduction to, uh, to, 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 to Islam. Um, I forget the exact title of it. It's either the, the Islam very short introduction by Cambridge University Press. So um, this can't go in the show notes. I can't remember which one it is. But anyway, I'll stop rambling. The point is that that introduction to Islam makes a very interesting point that you can divide Muslims into about three or four different types. It's the first thing we can do, which is helpful. There are Muslims for whom the word Islam is just an identity label. You know, so even when you describe Americanized Muslim, people who still say I'm a Muslim, but, you know, outwardly, they may not look very different from the average typical secular American. But Islam still matters. It's still their identity because their mum and dad were Muslim, their grandparents are Muslim. Sometime back in the past, there was perhaps immigration from a Muslim country. So so Muslim is, a, is an identity badge. Then you have a type of Muslim for whom it very much is a lived faith. It really is a living, vibrant faith for them. It's part of their identity. They're they're practicing, they're praying, they're going to mosques, they're taking things seriously. Um, then, this is where things get interesting, then you have another group of Muslims for whom it's also a political identity. Mm. And your your friend, um, you know, the, the, the Sharia guy, is perhaps moving into that camp of going, it's not just my personal piety, me and, me and God, me and Allah, it's actually all about now how we should structure society. Um, and in the words of that famous song from The Sound of Music, how do you solve a problem like Sharia? Um, (laughs) Too bad, too bad. (laughs) Too bad. And then lastly, by the way, there's a subset of the political, which is the the radical jihadis. Um, And we mustn't confuse those those last two categories together. You know, there are lots of Muslims who would want to see, you know, Western society restructured along the lines of Sharia. They have no desire to do that violently. Um, And it's unfair for us to assume that they are all you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS types. And so those four categories, broad categories, can be can be helpful. So one way of navigating that can be if you're sitting down and talking to a friend, colleague, neighbor, and even, you know, when they say they're a Muslim, saying, what, what do you mean by that? Help me understand that. What does, what does Islam mean to you? And if they're straight into, well, of course, you know, because my, my family are from Pakistan and, you know, so on and so forth, then probably you're dealing with the first type. If they're straight into the Quran and Allah and Muhammad and, you know, whatever, probably the second. And if they're suddenly, you know, quoting Sharia at you, you're into, you're into three or four. One thing I would say, by the way, and I think this is hugely important, and again, I know it's an area, uh, Nathan, where Christians can get hung up. We mustn't be put off by the fact that Muslims passionately believe that they are right and that they want everyone to come to embrace Islam or apply Sharia or whatever. Surely as Christians, we can understand that. You know, if you think that what you believe is true, I believe the gospel is true. I believe Jesus is true. And I would love everyone to come 
to believe that. I don't think there's anything wrong in believing that what your beliefs are true. There is the question about how you apply those and then how you deal with others who are different to you. Um, now, that may raise a few eyebrows among listeners. I'm going to just be even more controversial. The other challenge we get into is we can, if we are not careful, we sort of buy into this sort of, sort of updated version of Christendom and we think that the USA or the UK, well, they must, they have to continue the way they've always continued because, I mean, we're amazing. We're the best people on planet Earth, right? You know, God owes us one. It could perfectly well be the case that the future belongs to China or to India or to something else and that roll the, you know, roll the eye of history on two, three hundred years, Western civilization will not look as it looks now. I think the West is brilliant. I'm happy to defend it and talk about it and advocate for it, but don't tangle it up with our faith because the kingdom of God is bigger than our own civilization. And that can affect how we engage with others. We get nervous about Muslims saying, well, I'd like to restructure Western society rather than going, that's fine. Great. I'm glad you're passionate about that. I disagree with you, but let's talk about God. Mm. Yeah. So, and is that not one of the fundamental tension points though, is you, is Christians could look at Islam and say, oh man, this is a whole political system. They, you know, want to, well, okay, let's just go back through the four categories that you outlined and, and overlap that with Christian Christianity. So yeah. you have people who will say, you know, I'm a Christian because my grandmother was Methodist or whatever, you know, and it's just part of my, you know, you see this in African countries too, where people just, you say you're Christian and say you're not Muslim, basically. Then you have people who it's a, a real lived part of their religious, um, you know, experience their daily devotions, the way they live within their family and their household and their local culture. Then you have those who see it as a political uh, system. And then you have some radical versions of that as well. But the the Muslim is going to very quickly point to, when you get into this conversation, to the Crusades and to all the other forms of political expansionism that happened under the name of the, you know, under the cross mm. of Christ. So we have our own history here um, as, as Christians and whether or not you fit in those categories or not, we just, I think yes. recognizing that diversity exists and you will be, um, lumped into the political engagement category immediately. Most of the time, whenever the conversation heats up a little bit has been my experience, but you, you want to comment on that before we go on? Yes, no, I, and I think you're right. And also, let's be honest, we live in an age now where almost everything is political, right? That's one of the problems right now in, in contemporary culture. So it's hard for those things to become disentangled. But I think we can be reflective and we can sometimes ask ourselves the question, do I believe this because of Jesus and the Gospels or do I believe this because I'm an American, because I'm a Brit, because I love my country, love my nation? And look, you know, there's a whole discussion to be had about the difference between patriotism and nationalism. I think it's okay to love your country. It's gets problematic when you start weaponizing that and whacking others around the head with it. Um, mm. What I would say, the other thing I would say as well, Islamic history is interesting because you're, you mentioned the Crusades. One thing that's been observed, in fact, I was reading a wonderful book by one of my favorite African theologians this morning. He actually reminded me of this point. So it's interesting now that Muslims will mention the Crusades. Well, sometimes they will. When you look back through Muslim history, they barely register. Muslim historians at the time barely noticed the Crusades. They were a minor irritant because they were not particularly effective. They didn't, the Crusader kingdoms didn't last very long and Muslims ultimately pushed them back. Muslims were far more concerned about the Mongol invasions happening on the Genghis Khan because that was a massive civilizational threat. And it was only later, post-colonialism, when Muslim scholars landed on the Crusades as a way to weaponize the argument and go, look, this is what Christians have always done to us. You know, they're in the Crusades and yada, yada, yada. 
And it's it's sobering to realize that at the time, nobody really paid them much attention. It's also, of course, sobering to remember that Muslims were a great empire builder. You know, in the West, we get very nervous about now imperialism or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I live in the, you know, I'm a Brit and the British Empire, you know, gets we get whacked around the head with that and we're made to feel guilty and so on and so forth. There's a whole other discussion about the rights and wrongs of empire. But what I find fascinating, Islam was one of the world's great empires and yet Muslims are not apologetic for it today. I have yet, I have yeah, actually that's the, never that's the met difference. Muslim. That's the difference. The, I've never know. met a Muslim who's gone, oh, we're so sorry, we should have stayed in Arabia. Really, really sorry. You know, North Africa now, I remember the first time I visited a Muslim country 20 years ago, into Morocco. And you, you go there and you go, hang on a minute, why are there Arabs in North Africa? Um, you know, the original poor original Moroccans are the Berber peoples. They were stuffed up into the mountains because of the conquests. Um, anyway, that's sort of a, a slight tangent. But uh, other than to make the point that it's, again, this is where little education can be helpful in case you get push back. Um, but what you can do on some of these issues when you encounter Muslims in different positions, and this is where this question came from, Nathan, I think it's always interesting to take it back, take it back into scripture, take it back into theology, where all things ultimately land. So if you meet a Muslim who says Islam means X, great opportunity to say, that's really interesting. I've never really read the Quran. Tell me out of interest, where does that idea come from? Where does that come from in your, in your scriptures? Um, yeah. And that, by the way, is the difference about a kind of expansionism idea. Islam does give you a mandate, I think, for using violence to spread your version of Islam. Uh, the Quran certainly has that strand in it, and Muhammad had that strand in his career. Christians, on the other hand, I don't think we do have that mandate. There is the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is very much there in the Old Testament time. Jesus does not bring that forward into the New Testament and go, right, guys, get a sword and conquer the world. And as somebody pointed out, it took it took Christians a thousand years, a thousand years after Christ, before the first Christian writer comes up with the idea of holy war, before you can first encounter Christians going, hey, killing the infidel gives you blessings and a fast ticket into heaven. Mm -hmm. um, that was largely a response to the Muslim conquest, that ridiculous idea develops. In Islam, it's there at the very beginning. It's there in the Quran. It's there in the earliest level of, level yeah. of theology. I was I was blown away. So back when the whole like U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan a few years back and that whole debacle, mm. and I was trying to understand the history there, and I was reading some books on it, and I was looking at how during you know when the Soviets uh, were in Afghanistan, how the CIA was distributing Qurans in the rural villages of Afghanistan to try to radicalize the population there to drive out the you know the Soviets, and so there there is I think when. When people want to point to, if you're a Muslim, you could point to a lot of instances in which the United States, speaking as an American here, has monkeyed with the system. Um, and I just wonder how much of that is there is there an ability? Because sometimes we would run into students like when I was living in the UK who were like, you know, th they were from a Middle Eastern country and were just there as a student. So, I mean, they had a very mm -hmm. deeply, I mean, the way they saw the world was very much fascinating to me, particularly in seeing American as America as a Christian nation. Therefore, mm. whatever America did as a nation, particularly militarily in their home country, they would assign and link that directly to Christianity. Is is that still a thing? Is that a something to be yeah. aware of? Or how does that work? Yeah, no, it is. And I think um I think that's helpful too. And um to be aware of because it can happen in two ways. There's the there's obviously the the West and the way America has behaved, and to a lesser extent, uh, to a lesser extent, the UK. 
I mean, really, the answer here, quite frankly, is for you and the US to become part of the UK again, make America Great Britain again. That's my motto. Uh, no, yeah, well. And, uh, and um, but then the other piece, of course, that comes up is the Isra- you've got the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well, and that's another area where we can get into hot water because I know more so again on your side of the Atlantic than than mine. Lots of Christians get very passionate about Israel and all that kind of stuff, and go, "It's all fine. You can you can hold whatever theological position you want there. You just need to realize for lots of Muslims that is that is read through the lens of see the West haters and Christians haters and there's that problem there. And so a couple of thoughts there. One is to try and, you know, not to go there unless you absolutely have to. So don't get into conversations with your Muslim friends around 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 that stuff. There are probably better things to talk about than what's going on in the West Bank. Um, the other thing I think to be really helpful is to help tease apart from Muslims this idea that there are such things as Christian countries. Um, mm-hmm. Now, one way of doing that is you can actually sometimes get quite a lot of traction by saying, hey, just think about this for a moment. Are there examples of where, you know, Muslim countries, countries that would claim to be Muslim, have done things that you think are inappropriate? Are there Muslim leaders of those countries who've done things that you think are inappropriate? You'll probably get a yes if you don't go, oh, fantastic. So you agree with everything the Saudi royal family have done, do you? Right. The whole lot, yeah. everything. Um, because the Saudis are often, you know, viewed suspiciously. Um, you know, Saddam Hussein is another example, Gaddafi in Libya, the list goes on Iran. It's not that hard to get your Muslim friends to go, yeah, I, I see your point. Because then what you can lead into is to go, yeah, I, I put it to you that even within Islam, um, we get into problems if you start thinking about countries as being one thing or another. And certainly Jesus does not give you that mandate you know i see that as a great bridge to the gospel of going it's actually quite incredible really when you look at the old testament in the bible in which land is a very central promise and there are lots of promises the old testament come over into the new but the one that gets dropped is land christians are not men and women who have a land and who have a nation you know wherever two or three are gathered christ is there and we are called to be people who love and serve our country but we're also called to be people who critique our country uh, and have the courage to do that because that's not our identity. So helping Muslims see that can be tricky, but it's also a great opportunity to talk about the the differences. Um, mm-hmm. And also it gets you into one of the most powerful comparisons we have, which is Jesus and Muhammad, because some of the issues around violence in Islam go right back to, to Muhammad. I don't, we don't want to demonize the guy. That's That's not right and that's not fair either. But we do have in the case of Muhammad, somebody who was a tribal warlord, you know, who engaged in violence, who was a great military leader of men. Um, and in Jesus, we have someone who never did violence to one whom violence was was done. And there's a massive difference and, and contrast there. And I think getting to that can always be helpful. So one of the, the things that I think is just a really helpful pulling, you know, this kind of thematically out of the things that you've said here is so you need to, and we should all be sitting down and listening to and giving a good faith hearing to people who see the world differently than we do, particularly if they're, you know, parents of our kids, friends or coworkers, family members, whatever. Um, there's that part to it. And you will learn a lot of things that, you know, that there's a lot of variations within in Islam, but perhaps one of the more power, most powerful things that will happen in that conversation too, is to help your Muslim friend see the variation within Christianity as well. And so I think this idea that Islam is a very, uh, myopic. Mm. There's one version of it, and this is standard across all Islam is not true. But I think a lot of Muslims see that about Christians as well, and that's a, a facade that needs to be shattered as well. So, 
Yeah. Can't do I think that's very helpful. One thing you, yeah. And one thing you can say, by the way, as you talk about diversity, a really great discussion question with Muslim friends is, you know, there are lots of things, there are lots of different flavors of, of, of Islam, I see. What do you think keeps, what do you think holds Muslims together? What are the, what are the commonalities? And let your Muslim friend answer that. They'll probably talk about, you know, belief in one God and Muhammad and so forth. Fascinating. Listen and ask questions. But then it gives you a great opportunity to go, really interesting. You know, similarly in Christianity, we have lots of diversity. If you walk into a Catholic church, you look very different to a Protestant church, a Baptist church, you look very different to a Pentecostal church. But what Christians have in common, and here, by the way, we're right into, you know, C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity territory for those who know that book. And then you can talk about, you know, trust in Jesus and his death and, and a sort of atoning sacrifice for sin and resurrection. And it gets you a brilliant opportunity to take, make it totally Jesus-centered, as that's the thing. That's the thing that marks, you know, that makes Christians united, even though we may disagree about and differ about all kinds of things. What makes you a Christian is about trust in Jesus. And the same way, I think, what makes you a Muslim is, you know, if, if somebody who can say they believe in one God and Muhammad is his prophet, that's a good definition of a Muslim, whatever else gets tacked, tacked in on there. Um, but to bring circle this back to, you know, where, where we sort of started this sort of thread, Nathan, I think what's crucial is we teach this stuff to our kids as Christian parents, you know, walk through what Muslims believe. You don't do any harm by taking the time to do a little introduction. So, you know, there are these folks called Muslims. This is what they believe. You know, here are some of the things that I think that's worth celebrating that I think is great to affirm. And here are some of the differences and anything as we engage with our kids that lets us come back to Jesus and his uniqueness. That is such a great foundation for Christian discipleship. Our kids grow up going, what matters is Jesus and who he is. That's what makes us unique as Christians. That's what makes us unique. Not that we're American or British or, you know, we're more sophisticated than the person next to us. It's Jesus centered. And uh, that's what's missing in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, the list goes on. Thank you, Andy. That's that's really helpful and uh, amazing coming from someone who draw, drives on the wrong side of the road. So thank you for your time on that. Three, <laughs> three quick things <laughs> Three quick things as we move on here. Um, one, one is, um, so you've written an entire book called Do Muslims and Wor- Christians Worship the Same God? Can you give us a 30-second uh, soundbite answer to that? Yep. So... Um, so give us a teaser, give us an answer and a teaser for the book. Um, yeah, I realized I was holding it up, but then realized we were not recording the video. Yeah, so that's yeah, not a lot of good. The book is an amazing cover. It just looks glorious and, and, and fantastic. And uh, so, yeah, so in, in, a, in a nutshell, um, I answer the question, um, I, did Muslims Christian worship the same God? I say the answer is 85% no, 15% yes. By which I mean, if we, we need to break the question in two, um, does the Quran describe the same God as the God of the Bible? Categorically not. And the book looks at that in some detail, in a very accessible way. But as, as it looks at it, it does it in a way that will help you have a conversation with your Muslim friend about questions like, who is God? And who are we as human beings? What's gone wrong with the world? What's the solution? Those are the four questions that form the, the frame of the book. And it's designed to really help you engage Muslims in that. The 15% yes is I do say that sometimes you'll come across Muslims who are a bit like those guys in Acts 17. Um, They are worshipping a God they don't know. And the example I give in the book, if you meet a Muslim who says to you, well, I believe in a God of love. Well, the Quran doesn't teach that there's a God of love. That's not a Quranic idea. And I used to, when I met Muslims saying that, I used to sort of push back and go, oh, no, you don't. That's not the God you believe in. Daft thing to do. Wasn't helpful. Now I would say... I agree with you that God's a God of love. That is brilliant. But with respect, 
the God that you're describing to me is not the God of the Quran. It's the God of the Bible. But if that's the God that you believe in, you're reaching out for and worshiping, come on home. Come on. You are so close. Come on mm. home. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I like that. Um, all right. Quickly, um, what projects are you working on right now? What are you thinking about? What are you um, give us a little pitch of for folks who are interested in what you're up to at the moment? Well, it's very exciting. Um, well, it's exciting and, and, and sad at the same time, Nathan. So I have a new book coming out called, I don't know why I'm holding it up. Wait, again, I want to hear why this is sad. How to, well, I'll tell you a minute. It's called How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot. Um, a panic-free guide to having natural conversations about your faith. And I think, I would, I'm the author, right? I think it's the most accessible, certainly the funniest book on how to talk about Jesus to your friends, neighbors, and colleagues you will ever read. Assumes nothing really accessible but really deep and practical at the same time the reason i i'm really really excited about it. it's been 10 years in the making um so yeah i'm overjoyed that but here's the sad part it comes out in the usa next week and they're mm. launching it on the 4th of july the 4th of july to launch a book written by a british author they are pranking me at tyndale um now to be fair in the uk we have a name for the 4th of july we call it ungrateful colonists day but you know there we, there we are. But no, very seriously, it's coming out on your side of the Atlantic next week. Very, very, very excited about it. And then we don't get it in the UK until the beginning of August. Um, so that's the that's the big thing on my horizon. So just talking about it a lot, doing lots of media and interviews and podcasts and goodness knows what. And then, yeah, probably then thinking about the next the next book after that is now the next thing. So I, I, every time I sort of write a book and finish it, I find writing painful. And so I think I tell myself never, ever again. Then about two, three, four months goes by, and I'm like, "Oh, I've got to write something." You get the itchy. So, um, so yeah, some early, some early ideas are, are, are sort of germinating for the next big thing, and then yeah, lots of stuff through Solas. It's an exciting organisation to lead. Um, you know, we specialise in doing low-key evangelistic events in partnership with churches in places like cafes and pubs and restaurants and workplaces and schools and universities, and it's an exciting time because there's such a spiritual openness out there. People are totally confused about what spirituality is and if there might be a god. But the days of the new atheism are well behind us. Um, so it's a great time to be out there talking to people about faith and life and meaning and Jesus. That's great. And what what uh, where can people follow you, find you? Where should people look to keep tabs on what you and Solas? And, uh, yeah, yeah. So obviously you'll put a link in the show notes like a podcasting professional. We'll uh, say we can, will, but we'll see if it happens. <laughs> they, um, the, 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 you can find me in two ways. You can go to my website, which is the easiest one to remember, rather than the Solas one. You can go to Andy, andybannister.net. It's pretty easy to remember. And uh, it was definitely better URL than andybannister.gross. So andybannister.net. Um, or if you can't remember that, you know, because as you listen to this podcast, you, I don't know, you're on a bike ride or climbing a mountain or going fishing or something, just Google Andy Bannister speaker and uh, you will find me, you'll find Solas and that's the organization I lead here in the UK. So either of those ways will find me uh, or just Google, put my, bung my name into most social media searches. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual stuff. Dr. Bannister, thank you so much. Dr. Rissenhouse, it's been a, a pleasure as a, as always. You, you know, you know when I say people call me doctor and I quickly point out that I'm not, it's because when you run into somebody who has a PhD, that means they've been able to focus on one thing for many years. And most people who know me know that I can't focus on one thing for more than six minutes. So there's there's the proof in the pudding right there. And so the fact that we there's made it, it. Although, well, 42 minutes on this, this 
there we go. Well, I shall leave you with this thought to encourage you. One of my old theology profs when I was doing undergraduate work in theology and I was considering PhD or whatever, I remember he said to me, he was American, by the way, he said, he said, um, a PhD, Andy, you need to know, is not a test of intelligence. An undergraduate degree or a master's level degree, those are tests of intelligence. He said a PhD is a test of your ability to keep your backside on the seat for a minimum of three years. <laughs> well, and he I'm was glad. right. It is, it is the ability to just go the long haul. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you have a phenomenal amount of resources due to your work there. And we didn't even get into the textual criticism of the Quran and all of those other rabbit trails that would be fun to go down sometime. But thank you for your expertise, for your faithfulness, and for your willingness to share uh, what the Lord's been doing in your mind with us. And uh, may we all be faithful to, to put those wise words into action. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.